All right. It is halftime on Thursday night football in New Orleans, but week seven in the NFL just getting started here to look at the rest of the slate from a betting perspective. I'm joined this week by Tej Seth, who is a data scientist at Sumer Sports, where he also co-hosts the Stats and Scheme podcast. You can find Tej on the platform, formerly known as Twitter, at Tej FB Analytics. That's T-E-J-F-B Analytics. Tej, welcome back to Props and Hops. Your first appearance on this show came last summer alongside your partner in crime, Arjun Menon. Hoping to have him back on soon as well. But for now, really excited to have our first one-on-one -on -one conversation on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back again. You know, it was an awesome time to talk to you last summer. Really enjoyed that conversation. And I'm, I'm pumped for this conversation today. I think it should be a lot of fun. Definitely. And for those of you live with us on Twitter and YouTube, if you'd like to jump in with any questions or comments, we'd be happy to work any of your thoughts into the show when possible as well. So with that, we will hit the ground running. And Tej, before we dive into some picks, I will note that in the spirit of full disclosure, you haven't been betting since joining the team over at Sumer Sports, but I think your football acumen will clearly speak for itself over the course of this conversation. And to the point of being a data scientist with a heavy focus on the NFL and the overlap that often does have with the betting side of things, how would you describe your point of view on the relationship between data science and betting when it comes to the NFL? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's so many ways to go about being a better with an edge on games. You can have an information advantage, which we know a lot of betters have, and they're able to use that to their advantage when they're betting. But I also think that there are people getting edges out there from a data science standpoint. And you, you, you've definitely heard some stories before about different research projects and different stuff like that, like in the, in the Billy Walters book that's come out recently. But like, I think there's a lot of betters out there that are doing well using numbers to their advantage to make betting decisions. And they can go about this by feature engineering, putting together variables that people haven't seen before. Judah Fortgang has that expected drive points model that has been really good for his betting acumen. And, and you know, you also have other metrics like EPA and success rate that are more classic advanced metrics that people can use in their models. And then the second step of that is modeling as well. Like using some pretty complicated models, you can get some edges on games just by looking at how different teams interact with each other. So I think all of that from a data science standpoint can help from a, from a betting perspective for sure. That'll give us a lot of food for thought for this conversation. And I will give credit where it's due because last summer when you came on the show for the first time, you did offer a pick. And if you recall, that was the Eagles to win the NFC East at plus 210. You couldn't have been more right with that one. So as we look into some sides, teasers, and props on the week seven slate, let's just go through the lens of if you were a betting man, Tej, starting with sides across the week seven board in the NFL right now, does anything catch your attention? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was one line that I would be betting if, if I could bet this week. And I, I don't know exactly what the line is at all books, but I see it as Browns minus three from when I was looking at against the Indianapolis Colts. And why I really like that is I think this Browns defense is one of the, the rare few defenses that we've seen in the past couple of years in the NFL that can completely take over games. And they're getting this Colts team that is starting Gardner Minshew. I really like Minshew. I think he's a great backup quarterback, but that's what he is at the end of the day. And when you get this Browns defense and everything that Jim Schwartz has been doing and how stout the Browns defensive line is and the synergy that they have with the back end, I really like 
I'm just really excited about what they can do to this Colts offense. And then you, you turn over to the, the Browns offense and it hasn't been pretty for them the most of the season, but the run game has started to look a lot better with, uh, you know, after a little bit of a dip with the Nick Chubb injury, now that they're leaning more on Jerome Ford and Kareem Hunt. And then you're hoping to get Deshaun Watson back for this game, who hasn't played well, but has been better than the backup quarterbacks that they've rolled out. So I really like the Browns in this spot. All right. I hear you on that one. I haven't got to the window with Cleveland yet, but I think you might like where I have gotten to the window so far this week. I am giving an endorsement to your Detroit Lions, catching three points, that plus three at minus 115. So slightly increased VIG on this one, but I still like it. And I'll get to why I still like it. For starters, this has been a fascinating game to watch the market. The Lions at the Ravens, a lot of sharp two-way action in what should be a really fascinating matchup come Sunday. And I'll just say that a lot of people who I've come to know and trust in this space have sided with Detroit plus three in this one. Las Vegas Chris on the Bet US NFL show, Steve Fezzik, and basically everybody alongside him on the Dream Preview podcast, as well as Sharp Clark on the Move the Line podcast. And in a nutshell, a lot of the handicap comes down to Detroit simply being the better team than the Ravens right now and home field advantage not being worth three points in the NFL anymore. So that in and of itself would imply that there's value on Detroit here. And one point that Sharp Clark brought up as well is that both of these defenses, you could argue, are overrated. They faced some pretty soft opposition so far this season. But I think we've got a pretty decent barometer for Detroit, as Clark put it, by looking at the fact that the Lions have held every opponent except for Seattle significantly below their season average for offensive Mm -hmm. output. So I do think you can make a stronger case that the Lions defense is the more genuinely improved unit on the defensive side of the ball in this matchup. So I like this one at plus three minus 115 as is currently widely available. I'd consider it good with just a touch of wiggle room. Detroit up to minus 120 on those plus threes will be good in my book. Tej, as a Lions fan, I'm assuming I don't have to pry too much to see what you think about that bet. (laughs) <laughs> I'm really happy that you and, and a lot of other people are, are on the Lions this week. That that does make me more hopeful. And and I'm I'm pretty hopeful going into this game as someone who's usually pretty pessimistic. I think that the Lions have a good shot to win this game and to cover like you were talking about. I think when you look at the Lions this year compared to Lions teams of the past, this Lions team is particularly impressive because they're not just winning games by one score and, and hoping some variance falls their way, but they have had some pretty dominating performances, especially on the road this season. You think about the opening night when they go into Kansas City and they're able to take advantage of some of the missing pieces that the Chiefs have and come out with that victory because of a huge play by Brian Branch on that pick six. You think about the Thursday night game when they go into Green Bay and have this dominant offensive performance when Jared Goff had known to have pretty poor uh, home to road splits when, when going out of the dome to outside and he played well in that game and the, the offense was really well schemed. And then you also think about last week against Tampa Bay, where it was a dominant defensive performance where they held the Buccaneers who were doing pretty well on offense coming into that game. Like you mentioned with, with Sharp Clark's point and didn't, and didn't allow them to score a touchdown the whole game. So all, all three of those performances make me feel better about the Lions on the road this year. I think that Aaron Glenn, as a defensive coordinator, finally has players on on both the, the defensive line and the back seven that he feels comfortable running pretty innovative schemes with. He's struggled against mobile quarterbacks before, but there's a lot more talent on this defense than past. So I, I think that he could he could do pretty well against the Ravens offense this week. 
All right. Well, shortly before the season kicked off, I fired in a flyer on the Browns to win the AFC North. So if you're correct with Cleveland laying three at the Colts, and if I'm correct with Detroit catching the points at Baltimore and perhaps pulling off an outright win, then that would bode well for my Cleveland division future as well. So fingers crossed on that front, but we can move on to teasers right now. And teasers have been on a roll recently. So I'll cut to the chase here as a reminder to anybody who's relatively new to this pretty much looking for games that let you cross through the key numbers of three and seven on a standard two team, six point teaser. Those are good up to minus 120. a tough find in Las Vegas these days, but more readily available offshore. And at at least one of the bigger U S regulated sports books, Tej, I'm seeing six fits on the board right now in terms of that model going through the three and the seven Atlanta can be taken up to plus eight and a half at Tampa Bay, Chicago plus eight and a half hosting Las Vegas. Buffalo minus two and a half at New England. We're halfway there. Three more to go. New York Giants plus eight and a half hosting Washington. Seattle minus one and a half hosting Arizona. And Miami plus eight and a half at Philadelphia. Between this half dozen or so options, Tej, or anything else going outside the box a bit. Again, if you were a betting man right now, anywhere you look as far as teaser opportunities go on the NFL Week 7 board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that model that you have is is great, and that that's something that we were talking about before we started recording. Here was was that type of outlook on these types of teaser legs. Uh, the two that I I like that you said in particular was Bills minus two and a half. I think this Patriots team is is kind of packed it in for the season. So many injuries on defense, and then a pretty poor offense. And this Bills team is is very very good. Uh, even though they've had some bad primetime performances when they've played in, in these types of games, like the, the one o'clock slate that they're going to be playing on Sunday, like they they've done really well. I think, I think that both offensively and defensively, they, they match up well against the Patriots. And then the other one I like is, is the, the dolphins here. Um, you know, I, I think that the Eagles, that, that game's going to be a dog fight between the Eagles and dolphins, but I can see it kind of leaning into the the Dolphins tale of a situation where the, we could see the Dolphins end up blowing them out. I don't see as much of a path for the Eagles blowing out the Dolphins. So that's why I, I like to be on the Dolphin side as well. All right. So we've got Tej on Buffalo minus two and a half at New England with Miami plus eight and a half at Philadelphia. We are seeing eye to eye with one of those legs. And I don't dislike your other leg, but I will explain my stance in a second and why I deviate just a little bit. I often go through a process of elimination when we've got this many teaser options on the table. And when I'm looking to cross teams off, I look at Atlanta right away. That line is shaded toward three for Tampa Bay at Bookmaker, which is a really sharp offshore market making sports book. So that tells me I'm not getting as clean of a path to cross through the three. So a bit of a nudge to pump my brakes on the Falcons for now. With Chicago, there's so much quarterback variance on both teams in this game. And teasers are inherently a bet against variance. You want games mm-hmm. to stay pretty close to where the pregame point spread is. I don't know which way this is going to go. So I'm going to stay away from Bills or excuse me, Bears Raiders for now. The Giants, another one where the favorite Washington is currently under a field goal, but they are shaded toward the three. And that line's already at three at Circo, which is probably the sharpest U.S. sports book right now. And then Miami, you touch on liking them. They're the last team I'm going to cross off because, once again, the Eagles are shaded toward the three. And also, this game has the highest total on the board this mm-hmm. week at 51 and a half. That implies perhaps just a little bit more variance than we'd see in games with lower totals. I love that lower totals magnify the relative value of the six points that you get in a teaser, whether a game's lined in the 50s or in the 30s. So 
as people might be able to deduce by the teams that I've crossed off thus far. I have landed on Buffalo minus two and a half at New England paired with Seattle minus one and a half hosting Arizona. And I love the Seahawks leg here. I think the Seahawks had a misleading outright loss last week at Cincinnati. They won yards per play by a full yard and a half. They were just one for five in the red zone and the Bengals went two for two and the Seahawks lost the turnover battle. I think that that yards per play dominance by Seattle has a lot more signal than the red zone and turnover luck that we saw in that matchup. And on the other side, Seattle taking on Arizona, the wheels seem to be falling off for the Cardinals at this stage. I think they got off to a surprising start, but now they seem to be regressing back toward preseason expectations. So give me Seattle down to minus one and a half. And as noted, I'm pairing it with the Bills. I feel good, but not great about this Bills leg. Because Josh Allen, I mean, he's going to play in this one, but it seems like he's a little bit hampered by a banged up throwing shoulder. And then road favorites with teasers tend to bring the most variance to the equation relative to any other option of a home or road underdog or a home favorite. It's those road favorites that often present the most variance. San Francisco, the latest example last week for those Mm -hmm. of us who got down on the Niners before they were steamed out of teaser territory. I mean, it doesn't matter what number you got on the Niners because they lost that one outright. I still think with Buffalo in this matchup against the Patriots, we get the vastly superior team in the Bills asking them to win, you know, by by basically any margin, one or two points, not so great. But if we compare the teaser price of minus 120 to a money line parlay with favorites like the Seahawks and the Bills, a money line parlay is going to cost you right in the ballpark of minus 170. So yes, it's possible that Seattle or Buffalo win the game by one or two points and the teaser loses, whereas the money line parlay would cash. But for the 50 cents or so that you'd save by locking this teaser at minus 120, I think there's enough value there to get in play. Tej, I'm going to shut up for a moment. Any thoughts on uh, not just the Bills angle that you already spoke to, but also looking Seattle's way as a strong teaser candidate this weekend? Yeah, Seattle was actually going to be my third option. So I'm glad that you said that one. Um, I, I totally agree with you. When you look at Seahawks Bengals last week, the Seahawks outplayed them and had some really bad luck in the red zone and, and a couple issues with their, with their offensive line and, and, you know, but a rare Geno Smith off game, uh, you know, especially in the red zone. So I think a lot of that positive regression should come back in this game for Seattle. And like you mentioned, like Arizona was Jonathan Gain and that coaching staff was churning a lot out of this roster. That's, that's not that good for the first couple of weeks of the season, especially those, those uh, giants and, and Cowboys games. But you're getting to a point now where you just don't have the depth to compete with other teams that are deeper like the Seahawks are. And the Seahawks secondary is playing so well right now and, and can kind of take away some of the things that, that Joshua Dobbs likes to do. So I, I like that angle as well. And then when you look at, at Bill's Patriots a little bit more, the crazy thing is like, you think about Bill Belichick as this quarterback that, or sorry, this um, defensive coordinator that has like shut down quarterbacks in his division continually for years. Josh Allen, for some reason, breaks his defenses. Uh, you think about the playoff game, the wild card round, where Josh Allen scored on every single possession. And that has continued going from Brian Dable to Ken Dorsey. Like, I think that Belichick's defenses don't match up well against the Bills, which is which is more of a reason to like them in that game also. And I'll note, if you're feeling particularly bullish on Buffalo and then the case that you made for Miami, the case that I made for Seattle, it is also an option to look the way of a three-team six-point teaser, and those generally offer value at plus 160 or better. Some books still even paying out in the plus 170 range, so that's an avenue to consider as well. Tej, we've got some good alignment on the teaser side of things, at least with Buffalo, and when we look at props this week, let's see how aligned we might be as well. 
Is there a prop on the NFL week seven board right now that you would care to break down for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I have the exact number for it, but, um, you know, a prop that I've, I've really liked this year or, or just kind of have, have looked at is like Najee Harris under rushing yards or, or under mm -hmm. total yards. I think that we're seeing an increased uh, workload from Jalen Warren, whether it's, it's started to come or it's coming as well. And then Najee Harris has had some explosive runs this year, but when you look at his overall resume as a running back in the NFL, that hasn't necessarily translated all the time. So I think that we're going to see some regression from him in that regard also. Yeah, and when it comes to not just the handicap, because I think that you have as much good insight into that as I could dream of having the price really critical when we're looking at betting on angles like this. And I'm seeing his rushing yards currently pretty widely posted. It looks like he is lined at 51 and a half. So, Tej, when it comes to marrying the handicap with the price point, what do you think of Najee Harris potentially a look at under that 51 and a half number for his rushing output Sunday against the Rams? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really like that number. I think that when when the, even though the Steelers' offensive line was had some improvements over the offseason, when you're still going up against an Aaron Donald front, it's it's always going to take away two different gaps that you can run in. And Najee Harris is more of an in between the tackles runner than outside the tackles. So when they're going to have to be using him more on those runs, I, I could I could definitely see him going under that fifty one and a half number. All right, cool. So Najee Harris under 51 and a half. And I'll note that I, I can't push back on that in any way because I, I think back to last year, shortly before this point in the season, I remember speaking about Harris unders with Hitman, who's maybe the best professional prop better that has the public profile. And we saw eye to eye there and, and everything came through swimmingly when we wanted to fade Harris last year. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that his numbers still might be a bit inflated. I know that there was a lot of hype for him coming into the league, but it just seems like he's also coming in and out of game so much. So even if the Steelers want to feature him, it doesn't seem like that's always an option. And now to your point with Jalen Warren taking more of the workload, uh, Harris might have to be quite efficient to get mm -hmm. too much north of 51 and a half. Yeah, definitely agree. All right. I will note that while we're talking props right now, I am going to look to weave a little bit and look at a bet from a different standpoint and discuss my first Moneyline parlay of the season with a hat tip to Las Vegas Chris, who spoke to Kansas City to win at home against the Chargers, paired with San Francisco to win outright on the road at Minnesota on Monday night. And we can consider this one good up to minus 115, currently available closer to minus 110 pretty widely. And this is pretty similar to teasing favorites down, but San Francisco and Kansas City, not quite favored by enough at this point to really be in teaser territory. But the price reflects that. I mean, we're getting a, nice, uh, excuse me, a decent discount from the standard going rate on teasers. And if we look at the handicaps here, Kansas City, two factors that have me bullish on them to win outright on Sunday. First up, the rest advantage, the Chiefs on 10 days of rest, their second straight home game after hosting Denver on Thursday night last week. And then the Chargers coming in with a short week, just six days of rest off that Monday night loss to Dallas. And then they're on the road as well after a Monday nighter that went down to the wire. In addition to the rest factor here, the team profiles really popped to me. Kansas City doesn't always blow teams out the way that we'd expect, but they consistently find ways to win. And if anybody's seen the Chargers play anytime in the last 20 years or so, you probably know that they love close games and consistently find ways to lose. So I like the Chiefs' odds of at least winning this one outright, even if they don't cover the spread. And similarly with San Francisco's prospects of winning outright, a couple of factors here. 
one injuries. I know there's been a lot to look into with Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, and Trent Williams. None of those three practiced for San Francisco today after suffering injuries in Cleveland last week. But I think some of this could be precautionary. It seems like overall news has been more optimistic than some of us might have feared when that game went final last Sunday in Cleveland. And for their part, the Vikings are dealing with some key injuries on both sides of the ball as well. We know Justin Jefferson's on IR. And then defensively, they're also going to be without key defensive end Marcus Davenport. So I don't think injuries are necessarily going to be a huge negative for San Francisco, relatively speaking, in this matchup. And then when I think about the conditions in a dome in Minnesota compared to the nasty Cleveland weather last Sunday, Mm -hmm. I think that could bode well for a bounce back performance from Brock Purdy. So once again, this is a money line parlay, Kansas City to win at home against the Chargers paired with San Francisco to win at Minnesota. Consider it good up to minus 115. Tej, any thoughts on that one backing the Chiefs and the Niners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, to, to go against your own team here in the Chargers, I think that shows how you can separate the, the head and the heart uh, in, as an analyst here, which I think is really impressive and something I struggle with sometimes. But I mean, yeah, I, I really like the, the Chiefs in that spot. I mean, just when you look at the way that the Chargers defense has played this year, how susceptible they've been to giving up explosive plays and how the explosive has really been the key that's missing to the chiefs offense this season. They've, they've ran the ball pretty well with Isaiah Pacheco. And then obviously the pass game, especially when throwing to Travis Kelsey is, is always going to be uh, pretty high end. But like, I think, I think this could be a, a pretty big game for the chiefs pass offense and maybe even the secondary receivers step up in this game as well. And then, yeah, I mean the, the 49ers, Vikings game should be a pretty fun one to have on Monday night, but without Justin Jefferson, I think that this Vikings offense is, is going to struggle to have much of an advantage over the 49ers defense. And when you have the the 49ers, the linebackers that the 49ers have, and they can match up on Hawkinson, who's, who would be, who is going to be the primary receiving target in this game because of no Jefferson, that's where your, your edge really gets to, to um, get smaller there. So I, I really like that money line parlay from you. Glad we're seeing eye to eye. I'm inclined to push back a bit when you say that Hawkinson will slot in as Minnesota's go-to receiver. As a USC grad, Jordan Addison is a guy that I would like to see do some good things. But nevertheless, to your point, the San Francisco defense can really put the clamps down on just how much of a ceiling the Vikings will have offensively on Monday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's true. I think I think Addison's played pretty well this year. Osborne has as well. And like the thing, the thing with Hawkinson is when like we were projecting out his target share without Jefferson, like we did have Hawkinson as the highest, uh, like when you kind of distribute the the targets from uh, a no Jefferson led team. But, you know, some of the things that might be missed in like that model, for example, is like the way that they're, they're kind of slotting Osborne and, and Addison in their, their pass catcher group where they were number two and number three receivers before and now going to number one. So I, I'm very curious to see like what the Vikings end up doing with without Jefferson for these next couple of weeks. And then if he comes back this season and, and ends up playing with, with like where they're at from a record standpoint. Yeah, plenty to look out for. And I will say that we've covered plenty of good ground thus far when it comes to sides, teasers, a prop, and even a money line parlay for the first time this season. We will give a recap shortly so that everybody can get a rundown of all of our picks in one place. First, I'll remind everybody that this season I'm partnering with the team over at Right Angle Sports in an affiliate capacity. And when I thought about why or why not to enter into a partnership like this, I know that for all of us, betting is fun. That's why we're here. And at the same time, winning is really hard. So where I try to add value with this show is to highlight the best information from the sharpest sources. 
And with a team of pro sports bettors, Right Angle Sports has built a reputation as the gold standard for picks. They've got something for everybody from the NFL to now their college basketball flagship service also being available. And if you're interested in testing out their pick service, you can support Props and Hops by supporting Right Angle Sports. I've created a custom link to do so. That would be tinyurl.com slash raspicks. And if you're with us in YouTube or podcast form, that link is in the show notes. If you're with us on Twitter, you can find that link in the profile bio. And Tej, to dovetail that little promo with the team at Right Angle Sports, I got a good question from friend of the show, Adam Chernoff, who works at Right Angle. When he knew that you would be the guest this week, he wanted to dig in a little bit to the low scoring environment that we're seeing this season. And I think that it's interesting as we enter week seven to try to decipher how much of this year's low scoring environment could be signal versus noise. Do you have much of a point of view when it comes to league-wide unders that we're seeing? And specifically, it seems like red zone defense that so far has been quite an outlier. How are you making heads or tails of the scoring environment so far this season? Yeah, that's a great question from Adam. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of everything Right Angle Sports does from, from what I've heard about them. Um, but yeah, like I, I looked at it from two perspectives, the, the red zone angle, like you mentioned. And then I just wanted to see if overall possessions were down in general. So Overall possessions are actually not down league-wide. You know, we are seeing that with college this year, obviously with the new clock rule, but we're not seeing that with the NFL because there hasn't been any particular rule change since there there was an era between like 2003 and, and 2012, 2013, where there were upwards of 24, 25 possessions a game. Now we're, we've been sitting at around 23 possessions a game for the past couple of years. So, you know, we, total possessions has gone down about, about one or two. So, so four to 8%, which is interesting, but like you brought up red zone uh, efficiency is down in general from 2018 to 2022, we had um, five straight years of positive EPA in the red zone from offenses. We think about all the things that the Packers were doing with Devontae Adams and different offenses were doing around the league to, to scheme players open in the red zone and, and score in those environments. And that seems to be lost a little bit in offenses this year. The offenses so far have a negative EPA in the red zone this season. Uh, the success rate has dropped from 44% last year to 42% this year. So we can see some of the, the regression in the red zone. I see red zone as some signal, but also somewhat random. So we can hopefully expect some positive regression in that regard, but it does seem to be scoring is, is just down this season because of the way that defenses are kind of fighting back of, of these innovative offenses. Hmm. Some good tidbits there to indicate where there's some signal to this, but also realizing it can be a bit noisy as well. And one of my takeaways is to be relieved that I don't bet much when it comes to totals. And we have covered some bets when it comes to sides, teasers, props, and a money line parlay this week. I'll give a quick rundown that we can consider the props and hops NFL week seven portfolio here. As far as sides go, Tej on Cleveland minus three at Indianapolis. I'm on Tej's beloved Lions plus three at minus 115 at Baltimore. Consider that one good up to minus 120 VIG catching a field goal with Detroit. When it comes to teasers, Tej likes Buffalo down to minus two and a half at New England, paired with Miami up to plus eight and a half at Philadelphia. I also like Buffalo and I'm pairing them with Seattle down to minus one and a half hosting Arizona. So feel free to pick your favorite two teamer between those options or a three team teaser getting six points good up to plus 160. You could go with Buffalo, Miami and Seattle. 
When it comes to props, one this week, Tej broke down Najee Harris under 51 and a half rushing yards for Pittsburgh at the Rams. And I threw in a bonus money line parlay, Kansas City and San Francisco to win outright. Consider that good up to minus 115. Now, Tej, we've covered some good ground with bets, but I also do want to tap a bit more into your fandom when it comes to the Lions. They are off to a great start this season. So a couple questions I've got for you. First off, not just thinking about what they've done so far this season, but looking ahead a bit, what outlook do you have for what's in store for this Detroit team? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really exciting so far to to follow along with the Lions, you know, with this this five and one start. I think the Lions are in uncharted territories um, from an organizational standpoint. And when you look at the last decade or two, from the fact that they should feel pretty confident about their outlook on winning the NFC North and, and getting that first home playoff game in, in uh, over 30 years now. But the other thing is they are in a territory to be competing for one of the top two seeds in the NFC. And we know how important that is to get the home field advantage in the playoffs and, and that extra rest if you can end up getting that one seed. So the Lions are, are going to have some some pretty big tests these next uh, three weeks where they go at Baltimore, at home to the the Las Vegas Raiders, and then at Chargers. So if they come out of that 2-1 and one or 3-0, and oh, I think you can feel very confident about their status as a top six team in the NFL. If they falter a little bit, go one and two, I think that they can kind of go back to being a, a top 10-ish team and kind of reset their expectations from there. So we're going to learn a lot about this team recently and a lot of we're going to learn a lot about their improved defense from a metric standpoint as they face these harder offenses here. All right. And as a follow-up, I'll really make you put on your data scientist hat with this one, thinking about a possibility of our worlds combining in the next year or so. Tej, what would it take for Detroit offensive coordinator Ben Johnson to be the Chargers head coach this time next season? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely in the range of outcomes. Ben Johnson turned down opportunities like the Carolina interview last year because of maybe an uncertain quarterback situation or or different things with the the owner and, and different stuff like that. But I think when you look at the Chargers and they already have that established quarterback in, in Justin Herbert and they have invested in offensive line and wide receivers. And I think that would make Ben Johnson really excited. It would be less of a project than taking over in like Chicago, for example, like you would have a lot of those offensive pieces in place. And I'm sure he would have a ton of fun with a quarterback like Justin Herbert and his processing ability and, and his obviously his big arms. So I, I think that, you know, if this season continues to go the way that's gone for the Chargers, where they end up seven and ten or, or something along those lines, Staley will probably see see the boot, and then Ben Johnson would be at the top of the list, uh, along with Mike McDonald of the Ravens and, and different uh, coordinators like that. All right. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't want to wish on anybody to get fired, so I'm not necessarily rooting against Brandon Staley, but one can dream of a Ben Johnson, Justin Herbert combo on the sidelines for the Chargers before too long. And Tejano know it's a bit tongue in cheek with the data science nod in my preamble to that last question, but I would like to dig into it a bit further as we dig into some process oriented topics. And first off, something we can consider perhaps for future betting edges When it comes to everything you look at from an analytical standpoint, what would you say are some of the most overrated and most underrated stats when it comes to NFL analytics discourse that crosses your purview? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I love talking about this stuff. 
Um, starting with the overrated stat, I think interception rate is something that's discussed so much. And I've seen it used in, in betting or when people use trends of like, oh, this quarterback's thrown at least one interception in X amount of games. Like we should be betting his interception over tonight. And like, I think interceptions are so random and usually sometimes out of the quarterback's control, they're not that predictive of future interceptions. When, when someone's throwing a lot of interceptions, you think about Dak Prescott having a very low interception rate entering last season, having a very high interception rate in last season, and then it's back to being pretty low this season. So that's not a stat that I, I put a ton of weight in. I think that goes hand in hand with touchdown to interception ratio, which gets thrown out a lot uh, in, in different types of analysis. Um, a stat that I think is underrated is sack rate. I think that when a quarterback takes a sack, we often just associate it with the offensive line. And we have seen many examples of quarterbacks going from teams uh, where they go from team A to team B, and they have vastly different offensive lines, vastly different types of offensive lines, and their sack rate stays pretty consistent. Carson Wentz is a great example of this. Wherever he would go, his high sack rate would follow him. Now you're seeing it in Washington with Sam Howell this season, where there he's he's taking a ton of sacks, and that's been a high topic of discussion. But I think their offensive line has played overall well. So sack rate is something you can count on with a quarterback, but I think interception rate is something that is much harder to predict week to week and season to season. And building on that point of interception rate being much less sticky than some people might assume, a good friend of the show, a recent guest, Ed Fang, has kind of pioneered a stat, bad ball rate, where he gets mm -hmm. at not so much the result of interceptions or incompletions, but whenever a quarterback throws a pass that the defense gets its hand on, kind of classifying that as a bad ball and he's found that that tends to be a lot more predictive than interception rate. Are you familiar with the bad ball rate metric or, or anything else that might be a little bit more sticky when it comes to trying to dig beneath the surface and see which quarterbacks truly might be more interception prone than others? Yeah. Um, you know, back before I, I barely could code, I, I did stumble across an Ed Fang article about interceptions and how that they're pretty un unpredictive. And that's kind of led to a lot of my research on, on that topic as well. But, um, when, when looking at, yeah, bad ball rate or PFF has their turnover worthy play rate, that does seem to be more predictive of, you know, future interceptions and, and just more stable as a metric itself. And I, I think those are really good to track because like I mentioned, like so many interceptions are tip balls and then so many non-interceptions are defenders dropping balls. So if you can account for both of those things, I think that you have a pretty good metric when, when looking at it holistically. And circling back to the sack stat as well, the sack rate as being something that might be underrated. We've got a comment here from Dan Rivera, who's with us live on YouTube. You cited Sam Howell as an example, and Dan has noted how a lot of five and seven step dropbacks. When it comes to sack rate, not just looking at the offensive line as we have traditionally, but also considering it these days more of a quarterback stat, I see this comment and I also think, okay, is there something Eric Bieniemy is doing? Is there something offensive coordinators could do to put quarterbacks in a better position? Do you consider coaching when it comes to sack rate as well? Or are we more or less just looking to focus more on quarterbacks bearing the brunt of that responsibility these days? For sure. Yeah, that's a great point by uh, Dan to bring up. And like, I do think that some of it, especially when the quarterback is younger, is influenced a lot by coaching. The thing, like the reason why sack rate is, is more stable year to year than a lot of other 
quarterback metrics is because it stems from time to throw being so stable. And when quarterbacks move, move, uh, you know, teams and, uh, you know, change offensive lines, change schemes, time to throw stays so stable compared to basically every other metric in football. And then time to throw is highly correlated with sack rate. We know that the best quarterbacks get rid of the ball quickly when under pressure and hold on to the ball for a while when not pressured. We see that with Patrick Mahomes. And, you know, some people pointed out that Russell Wilson might decline because he was doing the opposite of that when he was in, in Seattle. So I think that that's something to follow as well with that. So like, like Dan brought up the, the five to seven step dropbacks uh, will influence the time to throw, which, which ends up influencing the sack rate. So it's that chain reaction there. All right. So clearly you have such a wealth of knowledge on all this stuff. And I would love to use that to take a next step in this conversation, Tej, and talk about something pinned to your Twitter. I guess it's not pinned. It's in your Twitter bio. There's a better way to say it. Football isn't played on spreadsheets. I, I think we all have a pretty decent general sense of what you mean, but I'd love if we could elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, was there anything that happened that sparked you to put this out there or could you elaborate a bit on what that saying means to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> as an analytics person on Twitter and someone who does a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, you often get that that response um, kind of with people telling you that like you can't measure everything that's happening in a football game. And that's my way of acknowledging that is is that statement in my bio there where, you know, I'm half half making joke, but half saying like, yeah, I, I agree. Like you can't measure everything in a football game, but we know that there are no knowns that you can measure. And we we try to do that to the best of our ability. And then sometimes that there's, you know, different variants or acts uh that happen that we can't control and, and we can't predict and that happens to everyone like that that is why it's so much fun to watch these these games every week is because of all the, the craziness that happens so i think that when when you are an analytics person you look at different metrics and and you want to help people be more informed and, and be better football fans because people enjoy being a part of that but again like the, the spreadsheet isn't going to pick up on everything, but it's it's useful to have for sure. Definitely. And as much as I can appreciate context, nuance, and advanced metrics, I also have a connection from that statement to a recent thought that I've been wrestling with throughout much of this week, trying to take myself back to the basics and a quote from Bill Parcells years ago, you are what your record says you are. And, and right now, as a Chargers fan, it, it's painful to think, but Justin Herbert, if we include his playoff game last season, he has a losing record as a starter in this league. And I think of somebody like Brock Purdy, who's 12-2 and two as a starter. And I'm not saying those two names to imply that Purdy is better than Herbert, but I think I am ready to say that both of those quarterbacks are not purely byproducts of the coaching and supporting casts that they've got. So, Tej, when it comes to, uh, again, that notion that Football isn't played on spreadsheets. And as Bill Parcells once said, you are what your record says you are. How do you balance the notion of advanced metrics up against the simple win and loss realities in the NFL as such a bottom line business? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, as someone who would watch Matthew Stafford play really well in a lot of games, but end up on the losing end of a lot of those games, I did develop that, that opinion that a lot of people have that, Wins are not necessarily a quarterback stat in a small sample over a large sample. I think that your win percentage can start to be pretty predictive of, of some things, but you need a lot of games. And I don't know if, if Brock Purdy and Justin Herbert have, have reached that 
sample size of games to evaluate that. But there are things that quarterbacks do that sometimes the advanced metrics don't give them credit for. Like when you look at someone's, and I think it's more descriptive than predictive when you look at this stuff, but when you look at what Kirk Cousins was doing last year, for example, where he wasn't necessarily playing well quarters one through three, but was having really good fourth quarters and like the Vikings were winning a lot of one score games. That was really descriptive of what the Vikings were doing last season and, and why they had such a good record. But it, again, it wasn't predictive of what ended up happening this season. So I think we were seeing a similar um, kind of start with Purdy and Herbert, where I think that their, their records are pretty descriptive. Like, like you said, with the Bill Barcells quote, where like in, in what we've seen so far, Purdy has, has won a lot of games executing a system that is really well designed and has really, really good weapons. And, and he's played well inside of it. And then Justin Herbert has played well at most times, but has certain games like the one we saw on Monday night where he ends up regressing a little bit and we see we see the chargers end up with a loss but his defenses always they haven't been the the best in in los angeles as well so there's so much nuance that goes into win loss records when looking at it we know the quarterback has the most control of it but it's always good to look at the big picture for sure yeah good point and really calling out that even though this is year four for herbert still relatively early on in his career mm -hmm. hopefully he's going to have a long one and then definitely still early on with brock purdy and Tej, it's very early days for your career as well. I'd love to touch on your own personal growth a little bit while I've got you. Last summer when you were on this show, you mentioned that you definitely wanted to be working with data, but you were a bit conflicted as to whether or not that would be in a sports-related capacity. And to me, that was totally understandable. You're in your early 20s and you were in between working with Pro Football Focus and taking on a role with a, uh, I think it was a risk analytics role with a consulting company. And, and still, as we have this conversation tonight, I feel like you've still got your whole life ahead of you. But how would you say your vision has possibly changed for your career path over the last year and a half or so? Yeah, I, you know, as someone with a bad memory, I'm always so impressed by people with really good memories like yourself. There, So that's good on you for, for remembering that. But um, yeah, to answer the question. Yeah, I didn't know for sure if I was going to end up working in football analytics because the jobs were so scarce and there's so many talented people that are doing that type of stuff. I ended up getting lucky enough where, uh, you know, Sumer Sports was hiring on the consumer side right as I was graduating. And I was really close with with Eric Eager. Uh, who, who who's now my my boss at Sumer and and ended up um, getting the role because of that and you know I ever since I've I've started I did part time January through May while I was finishing school and then full time after that I've I've really enjoyed it I think it's so much fun to be able to take something that was previously a hobby for me and and turn it into a full time job and I've really enjoyed it but you know something that I think that I've heard from people who work a lot closer with football, whether they work with teams or, or on like the, the product side, like at, at a supplier to the NFL is it's harder to be a fan when you're, when you're working that closely. And so that's something that I want to balance because I really enjoy being a fan of not only the teams that I root for, but just like football as a whole. And so I, I want to make sure that it's still really fun for me to watch these games and to, and to do stuff like this, which I'm, I'm really enjoying as well. So I, I I'm always cognizant of that for sure. And when it comes to that balance of embracing the fandom, no matter where your career takes you, I'm curious as to how you go about towing that line, because sometimes not even working in a full-time role in sports, I'll sometimes 
you know, wake up on a Monday morning. And most of the time, that means the day before the Chargers played a nail biter of a game and found a way to lose it. And I feel jaded. And then I'll listen to something like the athletic football show and Robert Mays and Nate Tice are just so jacked up to talk about Mm -hmm. every little thing they saw on the field. And I love the energy, but I find myself dipping in and out of it. What do you do uh, embracing your full-time role and at the same time making sure that to the extent that you can, you are protecting that fandom and the spirit that got you into this in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good thing to to bring up for sure. And and like that that's what I think like has gotten so many of us into this is, is our fandom. And then we start to get into like for you, the, the betting side, for me, the analytics side after, after the fandom uh, originally happens. And like, I almost always make sure I'm setting aside a time to watch my favorite team. And I don't have some other obligation that's happening at that time. And I'm not doing work on my computer during that time. Like I want to make sure that for four hours, every Sunday, I'm able to watch my favorite team and, and enjoy the games because I think it's, it's, it's the best to watch your team and text your friends or or you're watching maybe with friends and family and, and talking to them about it. Like, I think that's just such a good feeling to have. We only get 17 NFL Sundays a year to, to enjoy that. And, you know, to even do that with college football, this year, I've, I've found myself watching more college football than I have in the past because I look at NFL data the whole week and, and I'm doing stuff with, with different NFL models. And so college is very new and unique to me where I feel like I know a little bit about teams, but I don't know a ton about what's going to happen in games, uh, you know, as, mu- as much as I do with the NFL. So having that uncertainty factor there is, is always what makes it exciting. Man, this kind of stops me in my tracks because I feel like there's so much from a data science and analytical perspective that you've shared that people should take away from this conversation. But what you just said, I think is going to be my top takeaway. I think back to so many times where, yeah, my favorite team's playing, but there's a chance to multitask and maybe squeeze out a little productivity out of something else Mm -hmm. as well. And then I look up and, you know, the afternoon's gone and the game's over. And sometimes it was Mm -hmm. great and I just didn't fully enjoy it. And even something like this past Saturday, Uh, As a USC grad, you know, a big Pac-12 matchup, Oregon at Washington, I was geared up for that game all week long. And I had it on most of the time it was happening, but I was multitasking pretty needlessly. And sometimes in the moment, it feels like there's a chance to be productive or do something else. And I'm constantly battling with myself to, yes, be as productive as possible, but also know when it's time to just, you know, throw things into neutral and sit down and just relax and enjoy what's right in front of you for a few hours. Because to your point... 17 NFL Sundays for your favorite team in a season. And then in college football, we've got even fewer games. So as much as we love to nerd out on the bets, whether it's a fortunate win or a bad beat or on the analytical side of things, just purely enjoying this and remembering what got us into it in the first place uh, is probably going to be my lasting takeaway from this conversation. I'm so glad you you laid that out like that because I I share those similar feelings when I'm watching games where I'm sitting there and it's like the third or fourth hour of the game and I'm like should I be doing something right now like you know <laughs> like I'm sitting on the couch like should I be you know doing some yoga poses like I'm always like thinking about that stuff through it and I'll, I have to remind myself like you know during the week I think you know we work really hard at at doing this stuff. We spend a lot of evenings, you know, an extra time putting in this stuff. Like the weekends are, are, should be this, this special time for us to, to watch football, to, to spend it with friends and family, like I was talking about. And I think like I've, I've made sure to just enjoy that all because it, 
when when you're just focusing on the angle that you look at sports with, whether it's betting, analytics, film, and you only care about that, I think you do lose a little bit of love for the game. So it's always good to still be like romantic about football, like uh, like other people would say uh, in, in that regard. For sure. Well, I, I think that one of the pillars I always weave into the show down the home stretch is the Malinsky minute. And you could argue that we've already done it with these last few minutes. That that was really special to me. But I will note one more thing that I like to weave into this conversation, thinking of the late great betting legend David Malinsky. Beyond betting, he was also somebody who knew how to enjoy life to the fullest. And he was very well read, a very well-rounded person. And Tej, one more takeaway I had from our conversation last year, and it's not just my memory, by the way. I appreciate your compliment earlier, but it did help to have the tape to go back and review things to make sure I had my facts in order. You mentioned that you like to listen to a lot of different podcasts across a wide variety of topics, and oftentimes something non-sports related will trigger a connection to football. And to that end, is there a recent or perhaps just a favorite example of a takeaway that you've had from a non-football podcast that did foster some sort of connection to the way that you look at football. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a great thing to bring up for sure. And, you know, I think we talked about no stupid questions with, with Angela Duckworth um, um, last time I was on and like that, that again, like I'm, I'm dipping back to the wall there. I, I really like that, that show. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, they did an episode where they were talking about, is it better to be, a big fish in a little pond versus a little fish in a big yes. pond and, and the different yes. examples of that. And I'd read like a Malcolm Gladwell book where he talked about that. And, you know, that really got me thinking about like what we talked about on the show with quarterback environments, where is it better for a quarterback to have that Justin Herbert type start to your career where everything gets put on your shoulders right away and you're, you're managing this offense and you have to do all the checks at the line of scrimmage and, and all the audibles and all that stuff. Or do you kind of want that other side of things where the quarterback gets eased into it and they first start with just one or two reads and no protection changes and and they and they kind of move throughout that. So that's something I want to research in the future is like if you took these different quarterbacks and, and put them on different teams from draft day, how would their careers have turned out? It'll be like a, a pretty tough modeling question, but I did get that idea from listening to that No Stupid Questions episode with, with Angela Duckworth. Love it. Yeah, that that's a great weekly listen. Often I'll start my NFL Sundays before things get too crazy. I mean, it comes at us early on the West Coast. Your mm -hmm. games kick off at 10 a.m. But usually when I wake up, the first thing in my podcast feed is no stupid questions. And it's <laughs> such a good way to set the tone for what might be a crazy day ahead, but to offer some perspective beyond whatever craziness unfolds on the football field. So, yeah, that example still just as valid and not more so than when you mentioned no stupid questions when we connected last summer and Tej one more pillar of the show to weave in that would be the hops and I, I know that we talked a little bit last time about looking for gluten-free options and this day and age uh, I've been pleasantly surprised to see that there there are quite a few as far as what I can tell so do you have any favorite or, or recent discoveries when it comes to gluten-free beers or anything that you enjoy to drink when it comes to the hoppier side of life <laughs> yeah um yeah I I don't know if I uh I think we did the props well, but the hops part is a little bit more difficult to, for me as someone who's gluten-free, but I did have this, um, it was a blood orange IPA uh, by, by Ghostfish. I was just looking it up here, or sorry, grapefruit IPA by Ghostfish uh, the other day um, when I was at my friend's place and I, I thought it was really good. I, I really like everything grapefruit related um, and, and like the flavor in that. And so it being gluten-free was, was pretty clutch there when, when I was drinking that. 
Nice. I'm trying to find this one on Untapped. Where are they? I'm trying to see if they're maybe in Michigan or in your neck of the woods, or maybe they're just well distributed nationally. Uh, it looks like Ghostfish Brewing Company doing some real time research. Okay, they're out of Seattle, so they've got some pretty good distribution. If you got your hands on it recently, so that's a good sign for anybody in the audience who's intrigued. And I'll also note, being a native Southern Californian, some recommendations from my own firsthand experience would come from San Diego. Duckfoot Brewing, as well as Culture Brewing Company, do a lot of beers that happen to be gluten-free, but they're not really advertised that way. In fact, I wasn't seeking out anything gluten-free. More importantly, it was just really good beer that happened to be gluten-free. So I know that sometimes if we see things uh, like I think of dietary preferences, and if something is vegan, a lot of people would cross that off right away. And it, sometimes it, it's amazing if something just happens to be gluten-free or this or that, it, as long as the quality is still there, it can still bring plenty to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's always funny when like I have something on my own and like my brother will do this often where he's like, oh, is that gluten-free? Like, I don't want it. And I'm like, it's not like, it's not like you're allergic to being gluten-free. Like you can have, you can have that type of stuff. Um, and like you said, like oftentimes, like, you know, people end up liking it. So I'm glad that you ended up enjoying uh, one of those um, drinks there for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Tej, we're going to start to wrap things up. I want to make one quick ask of the audience, those of you who are still with us more than 50 minutes into this conversation. If you're still tuned in, that's a good sign that you're enjoying this show. If you're with us on YouTube, we'd love it if you could just like this video, or at least I would. Tej might be indifferent, but I would love it if you could like this video on Twitter. Same thing, if you could like the post. If you're with us in podcast form, as the majority of you will be, if you could take five seconds to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be greatly appreciated as well. And last but not least, however you're listening, you can support this show by supporting Right Angle Sports. Again, the Props and Hops custom link is tinyurl.com slash picks on YouTube and in podcast form. That link is in the show notes. And on Twitter, you can find that in my profile bio. We'll go ahead and wrap things up with that. Want to also remind everybody to follow Tej's work and everything the team is doing over at Sumer Sports, including Tej co-hosting the Stats and Scheme podcast. You can also follow Tej on Twitter at TejFBAnalytics. That's T-E-J-F-B-Analytics. Tej, I really want to thank you for your time and insight, not just with the picks, but everything we've gotten through in the latter half of this conversation. And I will say that uh, even if I've got some ulterior motives, I really hope that your Lions finish the season strong so that the Chargers can't help themselves when it comes to pursuing Ben Johnson come this offseason. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun and it was so great to catch up, you know, both before we started recording it. That was, that was one of the most fun conversations I've had in a while. And then obviously the show was was really great as well and, and definitely one of my my favorites. So, you know, I, I think this was this was a good time. And yeah, I mean, I as you know, being close to you and, and Arjun Menon, who, who's been on before as, as Chargers fans, I always feel like I'm, I'm rooting for them because like I want my friends to be happy. And they're, you're right in the sense where it does it does leave some scar tissue there for sure. But, you know, I'm, I'm confident that with the talent the Chargers have, especially on offense, that eventually you guys can can be rooting for a, a, a perennial playoff contender, hopefully soon. Fingers crossed. As a Chargers fan, it feels like there aren't often a lot of people rowing the boat in the same direction with that fandom. So we'll take your support any way we can get it. And for everybody else who's still with us, want to thank you as well for watching and listening this week. Appreciate the time. Enjoy what's left of Thursday Night Football as the Saints try to make it a game with the Jags. Enjoy the rest of the Week 7 slate and best of luck with your bets this weekend.